Well, today we're continuing our sermon series in the book of Philippians, which basically describes what it looks like to be a healthy and maturing church. Hope you were here last week to hear Brian's message. Brian preached from a passage in, in Philippians 1 where Paul explained to the Philippians that his imprisonment uh, did not imprison the gospel. Even though he was in prison, it didn't mean that, that the cause of Christ was shut down. He says, to the contrary, through his imprisonment, the gospel went places it would not have otherwise gone. It actually went to the imperial palace and the royal family, the whole household. He said, furthermore, when people saw my testimony in prison, they had more boldness to preach the gospel without fear. And so in today's passage, Paul basically tells the, the Philippians, you should have the same commitment in Philippi, commitment to the gospel, that I have in prison in Rome. And so Paul actually tells me, he says, I have this one overarching concern for you. We put it this way in verse 27. He says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. And honestly, this is the one overarching concern that I have for faithy free as well. If we are not uh, people who conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, nothing else really matters. Uh, whatever else we do will be nullified. In some ways, this is the most basic foundational command that God gives to the church. Look at verse 27. Paul writes, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Your translation may not have the word only, uh, but it's, it's the, just the common word for only. Some tra translations don't know what to do with it. But I think he's saying uh, only in the sense of just this one thing. This one thing that concerned Paul was that they conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. And the word conduct yourselves, uh, it's, it's an unusual word. It's not the normal word for walk or live. It's a word that had the root uh, citizen. The, that same root is found in Philippians 3.20, where Paul said that our citizenship is in heaven. And so I think what Paul is saying here is that since we are citizens of heaven, we need to conduct ourselves in a way that is worthy of the gospel. And basically what that means is that we need to conduct ourselves in a way that's compatible or consistent with the gospel, in a very radical, comprehensive sense. And so this would include our character, it would include our conviction about the gospel, that we've been saved by grace through faith, so we need to share that with others. It would be a, 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 a living with a sense of, of urgency, so in a very comprehensive sense, Live in, a way, live in a way that is compatible with the gospel. And the rest of the passage is kind of going to detail what that looks like. But first, I think we need to answer the question, so what is the gospel? We're supposed to live in a, in a manner that's worthy of the gospel, compatible with the gospel. What is the gospel? If we aren't clear on the gospel, there's no way we can live in a manner, in a manner worthy of the gospel. So what is the gospel? Well, different passages uh, articulate it in different ways. 1 Corinthians 15 is one of the core ways. Paul says, this is the gospel that I proclaim to you. Jesus died according to the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And so the gospel is this, this announcement. It's this good news. Jesus died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised on the third day. 
When we get to Philippians 2, Paul will say, basically, this is the gospel. Jesus humbled himself by becoming one of us and being found in appearance as a man. Uh, or he, he emptied himself by becoming one of us, being found in the appearance of man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, the most excruciating, humiliating death possible. But after he died for our sins, Christ highly exalted him and seated him at his right hand. He enthroned him in the place of power. And so that's the gospel. And God help us if we ever get tired of thinking about the gospel. If we ever get tired of rehearsing the gospel in our mind and in our fellowship, if we ever get tired of telling other people this good news about Jesus. What seems especially significant about the gospel in context of the passage we're going to look at today is that our Savior was willing to suffer on our behalf to secure our salvation. In an absolute sense, there is no salvation without suffering. If Jesus had not suffered, we would not be saved. What Paul is going to argue later in the passage is that if we want to be Christ-like and live in a manner worthy of the gospel, one aspect means imitating Christ and being willing to suffer on behalf of the gospel. And so live in a manner worthy of the gospel. Paul gives uh, three ways that we can do as citizens of heaven to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. The first involves standing firm in unity. We'll talk more about unity next week when we look at chapter 2. But notice Paul's emphasis at the end of verse 27. He says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel so that whether I come and see you or remain absent. In other words, he says, I want you to own this. I don't want you to just behave this way when I'm there. Whether I'm there or not, uh, I will hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And so he's talking about unity there when it comes to the gospel. He talks about in one spirit, one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And so standing firm in one spirit uh, basically means that they, as a body of believers, remain solid in their commitment to the gospel. They didn't waver from it. They didn't shrink back. They didn't compromise. They were strong in their conviction about Jesus' death, resurrection, and enthronement at the right hand of God as the only grounds for salvation. He wanted the Philippians to avoid what he had found in the Galatian church, about a decade earlier, when Paul wrote the Galatians, he said this, Galatians 1.6, he said, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. And so the gospel in the church at Galatia had been distorted and they had moved from it. Paul wanted the Philippians to stand firm in one spirit. And then he adds, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. could be translated contending or struggling as one person for the faith that is produced by the gospel. And so Paul not only wanted them to stand firm in the gospel and be committed to the content of the gospel, he wanted them as one person to strive for the advancement of the gospel in unity. And that way they would live in a manner worthy of the gospel. And I would tell you that we want to see this exact same thing 
here at Faithy Free. We want to see this exact same thing. And so we want to stand firm when it comes to the content of the gospel. And uh, like most churches, we have a statement of faith. It's a 10-point statement of faith. It articulates what we believe to be the essentials of, of doctrine, the things we want unity on. We can have disagreements on a lot of non-essentials. It doesn't mean non-important, but non-essential aspects of the faith. That would be doctrines and practices. But when it comes to these, these core things, we want, we want unity. And that, of course, would include the gospel. If we do not agree on the basic message of Jesus' death and resurrection being the only basis for salvation, then any unity we might have is very, very thin indeed. And so we want unity on the content of the gospel. And doctrinal unity is vital, but it's not enough. Our mission as the body of Christ demands a common commitment to advancing the gospel. We need to strive together as one person sharing the gospel with others. Now, at a church as large as, as faith, uh, you're not going to feel that type of unity with every other person, right? And so every one of us needs a smaller community of people, a smaller group of people, whether it's a life group or a prayer group or a ministry team or, or a group of friends. We, every one of us needs a smaller community where we belong, where we're known, where we know other people. And we can stand firm with those persons for the, for the faith of the gospel. We live in community. We urge each other to continue preaching the gospel to ourselves. We urge each other to reach out to family and friends and coworkers with the gospel. We pray for one another in sharing the gospel with others. We spur one another on to love and good deeds. And so this is vital. Not only that we hold to the content of the gospel in unity, but we also advance the gospel in unity. My observation is that Christians who don't have this type of gospel-centered community aren't striving together with other people, uh, eventually get preoccupied with peripheral things, and the gospel gets set aside. All sorts of other good things happen but not the advancement of the gospel. I've also noticed that people who do have this type of gospel-centered community, they often uh, see the gospel advance in powerful, compelling ways with great energy, great, great fervency. And this is the way it works. This, this unity in, in the gospel is a powerful thing. People are influenced all around them. The second thing, verse 28, Paul adds that if they want to live in the manner worthy of the gospel, they will be unalarmed by opposition. You could say unintimidated by opposition. He says this in verse 28, in no way alarmed by your opponents. He's talking about people who oppose them, who these are non-believers who persecuted them. He says, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you. And that too from God. The New Living Translation reads, don't be intimidated in any way by your enemies. And so this is if they're standing firm in the gospel and if in unity they are advancing the gospel. If they persevere in that, Paul said, you have no reason to be intimidated. You have no reason to be alarmed by opponents. As a matter of fact, it's a sign. It's an indicator uh, it's, it's something that's evidence of deep spiritual truth. 
And he mentions two things. First of all, their perseverance is a sign of destruction for their opponents, for those who persecute them. And basically, I think what Paul is saying there is that if you stand firm in the midst of persecution, it basically is evidence that the gospel is true and that the results of the gospel are true, that those who believe in Jesus will ultimately be saved. Those who hate Jesus, those who oppose Jesus will ultimately be judged. He uses the word destruction here. And so it's a sign for them, but he also says it's also a sign of salvation for you. And basically, perseverance is a sign that confirms that, gen- that they are genuine believers. They have been saved, they are being saved, and they will be saved. And so it's a sign that genuine believers will experience eternal life in the new heaven and the new earth. And this is basically the plot of the book of Revelation. Sometimes we get lost in the weeds in Revelation, but the, but the basic message of Revelation is that those who persevere to the end will be saved, and God's enemies will be judged. That's the basic plot of the book of Revelation. And, and uh, this revelation that God will save his people and judge his enemies, it's not a reason to gloat. The fact that God will judge his enemies should bring us uh, great sorrow. God takes no delight in that. Uh, but it should give us motivation to persevere. persevere. It should give us confidence we'd be unalarmed by any opposition we face. And again, if you weren't here last week, I'd encourage you to, to uh, I don't know if your message is on the website, but if we get it on there, I would, I would encourage you to listen to it because Brian had some great examples of how people have persevered in the midst of physical, violent persecution. Here in the States, we're kind of living in a bubble. It's a very unusual thing. Persecution we face might be ridicule. It might be excluded from certain types of company. But, but the, the norm across, across the world down through the centuries is for Christians to be violently persecuted. Paul says it's a sign. It's a sign of your salvation, their destruction. So unalarmed by opposition. The third aspect of living worthy of the gospel involves suffering for Christ's sake. And the idea here is that the gospel is so captivating, it is so precious that it is worth suffering for because that's what God uses to bring others to Christ. Look at verses 29 and 30. It's a striking thing what Paul says. He says, for to you it has been granted... In other words, this is God's gift. It's been granted to you by God for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me. I think he's talking there about when he was there in Philippi with them. You saw me suffer, and now here to be in me. Now that he's in prison in Rome, you're hearing about my suffering. And so Paul tells the Philippians that these two things have been granted to them by God. The first is to believe in him. God has granted you to believe in him. And so when you trust Christ, your will is engaged. You have to, tr- you have to engage your will and believe. But in numerous places, we're told that even that faith, it's a, it's a gift of God. And people put those two things together in, in different ways. But it's a gift of God to believe. And ultimately, what this means is that faith and therefore salvation are by grace. It is 
undeserved, it is unearned, unmerited. It is by God's grace. Paul tells him it's been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe, but also to suffer for his sake. And so if you suffer as a Christian, it is not God's curse on you. It doesn't mean that you are doing something terribly wrong. Uh, It is a gift to Christians whom God wants to use to bring others to Christ. Brenda and I lead a life group, and and what we're doing, we're studying the passages ahead of of the the, uh, sermons. And we were studying this passage, and we got to this verse, and we read, it has been granted to you. Here's God's gift to you. One translation said, it is a privilege that God gives you not only to believe, but also to suffer. One person asked the question, what type of a God would say that? Okay, what, what is true of a God who would say, here's my gift to you, not only to believe, but also to suffer? And that's a brilliant question, because if we believe that all Scripture is inspired by God, it's God-breathed, then, then God is the one who is saying, this is my gift to you, not only to believe, but also to suffer. And so I thought that's a brilliant, a brilliant question. And before I give my answer to that question, I think it's Scripture's answer to that question, I want us to see that the idea of suffering for Christ's sake, it is pervasive in the New Testament. Uh, Philippians 1.29 expresses a common conviction in the early church. It's a conviction that came from Jesus himself. It's been said that what you win someone with is what you win them to. Okay, so if you win somebody with a self-centered gospel of convenience, that's what you win them to. If Jesus had told people, come to me and your life will get a lot easier, nobody will say anything bad about you, all your problems will disappear, if he won them with that, once persecution started in the early church, the church would scatter and, and evaporate. They'd say, we didn't sign up for that. But that's not what Jesus won them with. Jesus told people that, that following him would be costly. He actually said, people will treat you the same way they treat me. John fifteen twenty records this statement from Jesus. He says, remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. And so if they lived as disciples, his experience would be their experience. People would react to them the way that they they reacted to him. Some would accept the message of the gospel. Others would reject it, sometimes in violent ways. And so it's a package deal. The two are bundled together, discipleship and persecution are bundled together. Significantly, though, Jesus didn't present this as horrible news or something to dread. He actually presented it in an opposite way. In Matthew 11, uh, 5 verses 11 and 12, this is what Jesus taught. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And so so he says, the blessing of God rests upon you if people say evil things about you 
because of me, not because you're misbehaving, not because you're mean and nasty, but, but if you so identify with me and you are so associated with me that people treat you the same way they treated me, Jesus said, the favor of God rests on you. Rejoice, be glad. You have a reward waiting for you in heaven. He told the disciples, disciples express joy when you're persecuted. And that's actually what we see happening in the book of Acts. In Acts 9, we read this. But the, uh, or no, we're in, we're in Acts 5. Uh, we read this. They, the council, the Jewish council, took his advice, and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and then released them. So they... Peter and the other apostles, they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing, expressing joy that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. Striking, isn't it? That was Paul's experience as well. When Paul became a follower of Christ, Jesus gave him an assignment that explicitly involved suffering. He knew this up front. There was no bait and switch. He knew it up front. And so in, in Acts 9, 15, 16, we read this, but the Lord said to him, this man named Ananias, go for he, Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. That was Paul's calling to suffer for the cause of Christ. And so not surprisingly, when Paul taught young Christians and he prepared them for what lie ahead, he told them, you need to understand that it's with great difficulty that you enter the kingdom of God. It involves suffering. In Acts 14.22, we read that when Paul returned to the churches that he had established, it says he was strengthening the souls of the disciples encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And so Paul didn't win people with the self-centered gospel of convenience. He told people that continuing in the faith would be costly. He said, you'll experience many tribulations as you enter the kingdom of God. And so as with Peter and the other apostles, suffering wasn't something to dread. It wasn't something to avoid at all costs. To the contrary, we see in Philippians 3, Paul says, I long to know Christ so deeply that I want to experience not only the power of his resurrection, but I also want to experience the fellowship of his sufferings. I want to have this commonality with Jesus where I enter in to the same types of suffering that Jesus did. And so with that context in mind, let's return to Philippians 1.29 and circle back to the question, what type of God would say that I am giving you this gift, not only of believing in me, but also in suffering? What type of God would say that? And we would say a God that is so compassionate that he tells his children, I want you to imitate Christ because I want more people to be one to me. I want people not only to hear the words of the gospel, I want them to see in you 
in your thinking, in your words, in your bodies, that if you are martyred if necessary, I want people to see that the gospel is so true that it's worth dying for. I want people to, I want people to see genuine believers who say, for me to live is Christ, who say, Christ died for me, therefore I will live with him, whatever the cost. I, I deny myself. I say no to myself. I take up my cross and I follow him. The God who's, who, loved, who so loved the world that he sent his one and only son continues to send his sons and daughters to bear witness in word and in deed so that others might know him. As we approach the Lord's table, I want us to think about the implications for us. And, and it's obvious. I'm, we're not saying go out and get persecuted this week. Uh, that, that's, that's a byproduct. What we're saying is uh, we need to go out this week and represent Christ in word and deed. And if opposition comes, ridicule, if people slander you, if people exclude you from their, their circles, whatever, we accept it as something granted by God for the cause of Christ. In this country, you can be a Christian and you can avoid persecution. It's really pretty easy. You, you can be a stealth Christian. Just fly under the radar, never mention the name of Christ. You can do good things, but never mention the name of Christ. Uh, don't live a transparent life. Nobody will bother you. I mean, it's, it's easy to avoid persecution. But if you experience Christ so deeply that he transforms your heart and your thinking and your words and your actions, if you experience Christ so deeply and then you live a transparent life, you don't put your, your, the light under a bushel, you, you take the veil off, you just let people see who you are, then you explain what God is doing in your life and you let it show by your words and, and by your actions. Uh, then we represent Christ well in our homes, our neighborhoods, our workplace, and our community. And so today as we eat the bread, which represents Christ's body, as we drink the cup, which represents his blood, uh, just consider your own life. And here's a question. I want you to sit with this question before God. It's this. Am I experiencing Jesus so deeply? Am I experiencing Jesus so deeply that I am compelled to represent him in word and deed, accepting any opposition and or suffering that comes my way. Just sit with that question. Invite God to search you, search you and try your heart. I'd like for those who are going to serve the Lord's table to come forward.